What did I tell you fellas about shooting? Aim small, miss small. Aim small, miss small. Boys. All right, kids, here we go. Next seminar up February 9th through the 11th with a few spots left. April 12th through the 14th. Then June 7th through the 9th. Last chance to sign up for our coaches workshop. That's February 3rd on Long Island. This is for personal trainers, group fitness instructors, or folks that just want to get better at coaching the barbell lifts. We'll go over the starting strength methods and principles. There is a discount available for active trainers, so check out the link for more details there. Then some self-sufficient lifter camps, March 16th in Wichita Falls, then May 18th in Omaha. These cover the squat press deadlift, how to film yourself, and how to diagnose your own technique. Lift Shoot Fight Camp. This is a two-day camp, May 18th and 19th in Wichita Falls, and this is open to anyone and everyone, so you don't have to have any experience with any of these things to come and get something out of it. We'll cover all five of the lifts, then some uh, pistol work, and some basic combatives, but don't feel like if you aren't proficient at any of these things that you can't attend and get something out of it. As we get closer to the government banning militias, whatever the hell that means, now's a good time to get some training. Press and Bench Press Camp, July 20th in Indianapolis, Deadlift and Power Clean Camp, April 6th in Queens, and then a shit ton of Squat and Deadlift Camps. The following are all Squat and Deadlift, March 9th, Cincinnati at Starting Strength Cincinnati, April 6th in Indianapolis at Starting Strength Indianapolis, April 6th in Phoenix at Weights and Plates, April 6th in Orlando at Starting Strength Orlando, and April 6th in Boise at Starting Strength Boise, and then November 2nd in Indianapolis back to Starting Strength Indianapolis. And also, last chance to sign up for our new Rehab Injury and Pain Management Camp. This is February 3rd in Chicago at Starting Strength Chicago. Come learn how to deal with chronic pain and rehabbing injuries using the basic barbell lifts and variations thereof. Will Morris, who is a genius with this stuff, is also putting it on with Nick Delgadillo. They're teaming up to bring you the goods, so check that out before it's too late. And then speaking of Starting Strength gyms, new locations at different stages. Colorado Springs just opened. Atlanta's been open for a bit. St. Louis is building out. We have Birmingham looking for spots. We have Nashville looking for spots. We have stuff going on everywhere, guys. So if you're more interested in finding out what's opening or what's on the books, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com and check out the locations tab at the bottom. And as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. We've got a guy that we buy sheep from once a year. And uh, all the members of the gym sign up for a sheep. And these things are, uh, these are, uh, oh, Hampshire Dorchester crosses, I think he told me. And uh, we kill them when they weigh about 225. So they're not lambs. These are they're, huggets. They're, they're mutton. They're huggets. 225 exactly. is a, yeah, 225, a, the meat is called mutton. The animal is called a hugget. And uh, hugget. So yeah, it's a big side hugget. This yes. is a this is a this is a mature. They don't get any bigger than that. They won't get any bigger than that. And at 225, they're fat and their chops are about that big. And uh, and then we dry age them for three weeks. I have, about, my, yeah. I have my I have my processor hang them for three weeks. Uh, 
and then uh, everybody gets the same cut order, and uh, everybody gets the offals. And uh, only thing we don't keep are the brains and the lights. So, uh, but liver, uh, heart, kidneys, everybody gets those. And uh, back, this pie right here is made with with our kidneys. It's steak and kidney pie, and uh, she made the crust this morning, and it just, this this is going to be real good. And we've got this nasty-looking piece of blue Stilton here, and uh, we're just going to divvy this up. So I'm going to give you guys a plate with a piece of the pie on it. I'm going to eat a piece of the pie while Brian is drooling on his end of the call. All right. I'm yeah. a very big mutton fan, so let's, oh, I, let's get that out I, of the way. Man, I tell you, the this stuff, the chops on these things are so good. God almighty, they're good. And the the worst meat on the animal are the hams. The shoulders. Really? Are, yeah. Now, I know you wouldn't think that, but that's, that's the I worst wouldn't. meat on the animal. The, I'm stunned. The, the best meat on the animal are the shoulder roasts oh my god they're just beautiful and these these chops end up uh if i mean they don't grate them like beef but if they were grated like beef they're prime they're totally shot through with marble fat and, and it's and, a delicious fat oh it's gorgeous it's just absolutely gorgeous and and you can pan fry these things to medium rare or you can cook them on the fire and they're delicious either way which is not true with everything but they're excellent on the fire and they're excellent just pan fried and uh, i like mine in the pan and uh i do too i'd rather just not taste the smoke on this delicious meat but if you if you've got a whole bunch of people coming over and you want to feed them chops a fire is easier to manage than a frying pan so, you know, I can cook 15 or, or 20 chops at a time on my fire, and, it, and it's just delicious. That fat with the smoke in it is just, oh, God, it's better than bacon. The, the sheep fat is just so good. But uh, so we get, the, we get the shoulder roast, we get the chops all the way. All the ribs are chops, chops down to the sirloin. He's been making sirloin steaks out of that little part of the hip and then i've had him do he he does he takes the ham and cuts them into two so you got four ham roasts per sheep and four shoulder roasts per sheep and all of the chops and then he grinds all of the neck meat and all of the everything in between and, and oh and the ribs are separate too oh my god the sheep ribs are so <laughs> shit, they're so good this <laughs> beyond my talents you have to be a really good barbecuer yeah. chef to do the those ribs properly oh they're, they're good they're good you they're just fabulous don't... but they're also like as with the kidneys they're fabulous but they're easy to ruin yeah oh they are you can't leave them on too long but no, by the you... same token, they have to be done or they're tough. So I've got to, I've got figured this out. I've fooled around with this shit for a long time now, and I've I've got the ribs down. 
And in fact, what I will do, I will cook a couple of racks of ribs along with a shoulder roast on the same fire. And you have to manage them. You know, you've got to, you've got to know where to put them on the fire so you don't fuck the ribs up. And the shoulder roast is a little more tolerant of, of, of the heat. And, uh, but, and, and then you've got to put the right wood on there for the correct smoke. And, uh, I've been using lump charcoal because I've got, I have good control of my heat when I'm using lump charcoal. And then I'll put a piece of pecan, which to you would be hickory. It's the same wood. And, uh, you've got hickory up in Pennsylvania and, uh, no pecans, unfortunately. But no pecans. It's the same wood. It's exactly the same I, I, wood. Last time I drove across Texas, the first thing I do, I saw pecans by the side of the road. Yeah. Like, oh, what a sight. Yeah. Okay. There's, uh, there's a bunch of pecan trees down here. But as far as cooking on the stuff is concerned, uh, hickory and pecan are exactly the same wood. And it's the best cooking wood in North America as far as I'm concerned. And I might think differently about it if I had access to almond wood because I've I've heard that that's real good too, but uh, they, they don't grow here. So, and I'm not willing to go to California. So, uh, nor here. I, I have okay. had almond wood smoke items made on with almond wood in California, and yeah, pretty good. I, I will vouch for it. It's it's pretty impressive. Yeah. In in England, when people do this, they use fruit woods. You'll find right. apple wood and pear. And that, and that works here, too, if you can get fruit trees in North Texas, which don't actually grow here very much. But uh, I've had I've had meat cooked on apple wood and plum wood, believe it or not. Plum wood works just fine. Uh, peach wood. Oh, yeah, all of those, are they, they work just fine for, for cooking. But... Uh, the uh I, you know it'd be easier to get plum wood in uh well i don't know plums kind of grow wild down here but they're little bitty trees and they make little thickets but i've had you know domestic plum trees out of somebody's yard that the tree just died and i got the got the big branches the size of my forearm and they, that makes excellent cooking wood but uh, up in Colorado, where apples grow, oh God, that's that's fabulous cookwood. And uh, people, that I was don't... surprised to see on my early trips to England when I first started visiting. When I met my wife, whose sister lives in England, uh, how many people were smoking that they were smoking meats and cheeses with with fruit wood? Really. And, for that matter at all i was stunned to see barbecue stands you know you go to a town square and you there'd be somebody with a barbecue pit and interesting i did it did never occurred totally, to me that they did that totally mm -hmm. unprepared for it and i have watched videos of barbecue competitions and attended a few barbecue competitions and have seen british teams uh using fruit wood and uh using sauces that are totally totally alien in a way but like a close cousin like right. a close cousin but with a different personality right 
So welcome, just out of curiosity, if you're interested, we're talking to our friend Brian Yarvin today on Starting Crank Radio. Brian is the author of the book you have in front of you on the table, The Plowman's Lunch and the Miser's Feast. Now, unfortunately, this is out of print, but if you can find a used copy on Amazon, you need to buy this book. Maybe enough demand will happen so that he will put it back in print, but we are going to talk about British food, because as you are well aware, this is British Food Month here at Starting Strength, and we are going to eat some British food today, and we're going to be talking about this kind of stuff all month, and uh, we're going to surprise you with some videos and some stories and all kinds of things about British food. Now, Brian is an expert on this. He studied it extensively. And he's done more than just eat it. And if you have an opportunity to look at this book, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You did all the photography for that text, right? Yes. And the photography's better than the recipes. It's this. This is this is a beautiful book. Thank and you so much. That's I'm, very kind. I'm surprised that it's out of print. I really am. Uh, oh, it's it's a. It's a story for a separate podcast. It, it yeah. really is. Um, it's it's not out of print because of poor sales. It's out of print because it, the publisher was acquired by a British company that, that took all the British titles out of print just without looking at them. Well, I wonder why they did that. Because they wanted to replace them with their own titles. Ah. ah. They get a higher royalty rate. Right. And you don't own the copyright, so... Well... We need a lawyer to to parse that one out. I, I own partially uh, on the copyright. I think you ought to. I think you ought to hire that attorney because we might be interested in printing this book for you. Well, we, pub, we publish books, you know. It would be <laughs> as a matter. It, of fact. it would be good. I'm going to show another book if I can. Yes, um, please. I don't know if this. This is the one that's is, currently available. This is a world of dumplings, and this is uh, another book of mine. This has been in print, actually, for uh, almost 15 years. And if you look inside, you will see a good set of recipes for Cornish pasties, at least four or five varieties. And I would recommend that you could go right now to Barnes & Noble or to a good bookstore, ask for uh, World of Dumplings by Brian Yarvin, and besides a whole bunch of other recipes, you'll find pretty much the only solid Cornish pasty recipes in American measurements. And I worked hard to do that. And yeah. I think it's worth it. I love them. I, they're, they're like older cousins of empanadas. And of course, empanadas began just across the water from pasties. They're, they're right. close cousins. Um, and I recommend you do that. Well, Hold the book up again so everybody can sure. burn this into their mind. I need to get this one, too. I don't have it yet. The world, of, A world of dumplings. Right. Now, who doesn't like dumplings? Well, stupid um, people don't like dumplings, so that's not going to be a problem because we have a highly educated audience, a highly educated, that. highly intelligent audience that watches this podcast. How many... How many subscriptions do we have on uh, YouTube now? 275? 275,000 subscriptions on uh, on our YouTube channel. And we will make a 
we don't run the shows on the YouTube channel because I often say things that are not nice to the people at uh, uh, in the media who uh, get to decide what you see and what you don't see. But we'll run a commercial on that for for this episode, and we'll feature that book, and maybe we'll get you some sales of the a World of Dumplings title as well. Well, I but, appreciate all of it. Good. Well, I I, I think I, your I, readers, your listeners, will appreciate. Oh, all they of will. Because... I'm sure they will. These are not these people like to eat things. Yeah, weightlifters like to eat. I think I you'll find that they are they are a, a bunch of eating people, and uh, I don't know if you'd call them foodies, but you know we're all pretty much involved in uh, trying to get a lot more calories in than the general public does, and we like good stuff, and I think you'll find that uh your books are of interest to us and we'll have to talk further about the plowman's lunch and see what we can do about that Let's now talk. uh here we have today i'm gonna turn this so the camera can see it. is that a good shot you guys see it steph made this steak and kidney pie today in fact it's still warm it's still warm, and we're going to have a piece of this. The three of us are going to have a piece of this while you and I talk. And uh, this is made all from scratch because we don't do it the other way. This is a hot water crust. And... Uh, which is an interesting way to make a crust, but this is, I've had her hot water crust before, and this is good. Now, I'm telling you, this is some good shit. This is just excellent. All right, so there's that. Now, you guys can come get your plate. I'm going to put some pickled onions on this. If I can keep from getting this shit all over the room, it'd be it'd be useful, wouldn't it? And she made these pickled onions too. See the little pieces of allspice floating around in there? Oh, look, there's a pepper. Isn't that beautiful? Kind of spicy. Now, here is his Nick's or Rusty's. Here's your piece of blue Stilton. Thank you. Oh, oh, you guys, I'm telling you, neither Is one. Is that a Texas cheese, or did you get that from England? The what? The cheese. We Was bought it? this at, uh, it, it's available. It's an English blue Stilton. We bought it at Trader Joe's. Oh, okay. You got Trader Joe's up there? Uh, not near here, but we have uh, farmers who are making blue Stilton. 
we've got Trader Joe's is a is a wonderful place. They they have uh, they have done uh, a fabulous service to a whole lot of people by exposing them to lots and lots of different things over the. Uh, oh, did I not cut that all the way? Well, here, I'll keep that one for myself. Because Nick may not like this. You think you're going to like this, Nick, or not? Well, because you're difficult. Ooh, something is. There's a little muscle in here hanging on to that. Ah, there he is. I cut the. That's his little bicep tendon there. All right, help me with this. I need you. Lovely little piece of steak and kidney pie. And this is not the first time we've had this. We make this all the time. We make steak and kidney pie on a regular basis because we like British food. I've been a big fan of British food uh, since the first time I went to the UK a long time ago and ate in what is called a carvery. And uh, Brian, tell us about the carvery tradition. In, the, in the carvery. UK. It's, it's the tradition of, of having a roast that is served collectively, that a group right. of people come in, people come from church on Sunday, they uh, come usually Sunday, but it could be yeah. other days, or after work for a dinner party, you know, dinner in a what would now be a pub, and there will be out there a roast. It could be a, a leg of mutton, uh, we talked about before it could be a a, a, beef, a beef roast uh they it could be a, nowadays it could be a turkey too um mm -hmm. and they always have the greatest gravy with those roasts they cook them they cook them very well and the quality of meat in britain is very very high um and the quality of gravy is totally unsung and <laughs> you have your your roast you have these things we call them popovers they call them yorkshire puddings mm -hmm. you get very often nowadays you get very good vegetables you know 30 years ago you would just get mush but now you get delicious uh vegetables especially carrots uh potatoes they know what they're doing Parsons and they have and turnips are popular over there much more popular than here and they're parts of they're called swede and and they make them so nicely just so nicely and it, it's just the ro the sunday roast tradition is just one of the greatest food surprises uh that people have when they when they leave london and they go to rural or small town britain which is just a whole another you go to london and you're there with the tourists and the bankers and you don't know why you 
sat eight hours on a plane, what that was for. To get and there, then you, you could have just gone to Chicago, you know. You could have gone to Chicago, you could have gone to Philadelphia. But when you're there, when you're in one of the, especially the national parks, if you're in the Lake District or in the Yorkshire Dales, the food is phenomenal, the scenery is phenomenal, and for you who are into outdoor sports, who are backpackers, who are hikers, who are kayakers, the the sporting scene is phenomenal. What's what's there for you? And cyclists, the great bicycle trails too, um, and always punctuated by the best beer you'll ever have, mm-hmm. served with the best food you will ever have. And if yeah. you're passions are meat and fish you will be in for a an astounding surprise it's always been interesting to me since i've been there several times and eaten in carveries and pubs and bless you and various restaurants all over the all over the country that uh there are a tiny little group of idiots who refer to British cooking as boring or bland or, or, you know, where in the hell did that come from, Brian? They stayed in the tourist areas. I guess that's what they, I guess that's that's all they could have done. Yeah. You know? You go to Piccadilly Circus and, and, and your best food choice is Burger King. I mean, this is, (laughs) this is, and and it it just gets, you know, I'm 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 without words because I know that if you go, even in the, the close suburbs of where the people who work at Piccadilly Circus live, that they can eat very very well. Mm-hmm. And also, these are obsolete notions too. Um, in fact, during you know in the 1950s, a lot of people there, a lot of Americans they they were in Britain at the end of the Second World War, and right. they had terrible food. My well, father there has... There wasn't any food available at the time. No, I mean, and there was no way of... recovering from a war. They were recovering from a... from battle. From right. battle in their own yards and houses. And I think they did my own impression, and of course I wasn't yet born, but my own impression I get from my father and my uncle, who were both there at that time, was that they were actually doing pretty well that maybe it was a bit boring but they were they were living they weren't just surviving they were really living and i i have to they were say celebrating that, the fact they were still alive because in a very big way big in a way. very big way there was a lot the mere being the mere being alive was a lot to celebrate in 1946 in mm-hmm. europe my uh, father was in world war Two. He was stationed in England before before they pulled off the little D-Day thing. And he was there about a year training prior to June the 5th. And uh, so, you know, I grew up with the, with a, with a guy from that same period of time, just like you did. And, uh, yeah, he was, uh, uh, he was happy to get back. He certainly was. Now, oh God, 
Have you guys eaten this blue cheese with the steak pie? No. <laughs> it makes wonderful. me want to cry. You make me want to cry. Oh, I'm sure. It's just a wonderful combination of flavors. Here's an onion and some steak pie and some blue stilton, all in my mouth at the same time. <laughs> all you're missing is a spoonful of mustard. Yeah, I don't have any mustard. I'm I didn't sorry. think about that. You know, let's see what this does. HP sauce is good on all kinds of things. I like it especially on certain types of, of the lamb, of the sheep meat, the mutton that we eat. Sometimes it's good on that. All right, but uh, what is that I put it on all the time? I can't remember. I keep a bottle on the table. I, I just eat it with H. Oh, liver. That's what I eat it on. I eat liver, fried liver, and put HP on the liver, and it's good like that. It's real good. Try that sometime. But uh, anyway, the uh, here in Wichita Falls, Texas, of all places, there was a hotel a long time ago, like 40 years ago, there was a hotel here called the Trade Winds Motor Hotel. And the Trade Winds had an excellent restaurant. And their Sunday lunch special was a carvery. It was a classic British carvery. Big standing rib roast. I guess that would have been a ham roast. One bone in the middle of it. I don't know I don't know where they got it, but it was those guys but that, that ham equivalent of a cow. Yep. Exactly. And uh and the damn thing was, those guys knew how to cook that thing. They would stud it with garlic, and it came out medium rare. And it was good quality beef. And 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 they had vegetables, and, you know, potatoes and carrots and, and cabbage and all kind of stuff on the steam table that you could get with it. But it was, they had a big bowl of extremely hot horseradish. That go that went with it. They had they had gravy that was juice, or they made brown gravy out of some of the juice. You'd get all of that on there, and oh, I just you know that that lasted for decades down there. They finally closed that probably twenty five years ago. But it was a treat to get to go down there and eat that Sunday buffet they had at. It, it was a carvery. That's what it was. It was a carvery, just exactly like what you're talking about. So, I, I grew up in New York, and for a New Yorker, any meat meal in Texas is a treat. You know, that's right. the whole point of going to Texas. Mm-hmm. And I, we had, um, that's the only one of those I remember. Well, uh, we would have many, not many, but more than a few British food outlets here. When here in Lancaster, I've, I've only lived here full time for about a decade. There were at one time many more. There was a British grocery and several restaurant pubs. One pub is left. 
the grocery is gone and because the tobacco buyers are no longer here. In Philadelphia and New York and in the New Jersey that's in between, there are many British shops, pie shops that specialize, um, fish and chips. I'd like to find pie and mash, the rectangular ground meat pies with mm -hmm. mashed potatoes and great and the uh, parsley sauce which i i just absolutely love and miss i have not been in the uk in about five years and uh it, it's tough to say goodbye you know i've been very mm -hmm. very busy this past five years and very active but i have not been able to make that trip uh we were last there in 07 07 so it's been I a was, long time since we we went I was to, there in 07 uh, writing that book because the the bones of that book were laid out in 2006 and 2007. Uh, originally, I wanted to write a travel book because this, in the process of writing that book, I walked from Cornwall to Berwick-upon-Tweed, about 700 miles. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I'm very, I'm a very avid European distance walker besides being a recipe writer. And I found that by the time I was even just 50 miles in, I was spending more time recording recipes than I was recording my, my walking. And <laughs> by the time I was halfway through, you know, around Reading or so, I had realized that, that I was, had seen a lot of food that nobody at the time was talking about. Uh, Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay hadn't been on television just yet in that role. They were there. They were still talking about Italian food and uh, French food, which are have their own many more valid uh, advocates. They don't. They weren't needed for that. They were needed for their own food, and here we are. Um, right. I did that walk. I did a couple of other walks. In, I love walking in Britain. I walked the uh, the Thames the Thames Path, which is a couple of hundred miles, also in 2013. But I gathered those recipes, and I kept getting asked why. That the more people would ask me, why are you collecting recipes for rag pudding or <laughs> onion bhaji? Um, I would have to say, well, nobody else is, and and it's good. It, it, it's 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 not only is it good, but lots of people want to make it, and they have no way of doing it. There was there, there was no option, and there's still no option if you're using American measurements. My right. my book is pretty much the only one, um, or to my knowledge, the only one. Do. Uh... Do you think that Patrick O'Brien's novels have had an impact on the interest I, in British food? I don't know Patrick O'Brien. Oh, my I, God. I spend so much time reading food books that I don't do novels very Brian, often. Patrick O'Brien wrote about 25 novels yeah. about the British Navy from uh -huh. the start of the Napoleonic Wars through about the 1830s. Oh, good grief. I would love this. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, God, you would. I would love this. He goes into great, great detail on the food. And uh, that's where I first heard of Spotted Dick. A favorite uh, of mine. Oh, oh. Spotted Dick was what's heavily featured in these in these books um, th- those are just fabulous fabulous books uh patrick o'brien was a brilliant man and he wrote all of those novels on paper with a pen and uh and there's uh, i mean you get used to reading 300 word sentences in this, he's not pandering to the audience at all. Not, no, not no. at all. That sounds he's, great. He's talking about the this. battles, and he's talking about the, he's talking about the age of sail, uh, uh, an entire technology, an advanced technology, that is completely lost. That is. Uh, well, I, uh, at the time, a three-masted uh, you know, 75-gun sailing ship was the most complicated object on Earth. And the, the technology to operate that device was extensive and well-developed and it's just gone but this is a little remnant of of exposure to this and as a side effect you get an idea of the food that was eaten on a ship in the middle of the ocean by the people that operated this device and uh yeah that's that's uh uh, it's a, it's a, you need to look those up cause that's a, you'll be fascinated with the, with the series. I've read all of them oh and, gosh. uh, and it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. It really is. Uh, but you know, here in, here in, in, uh, North Texas, uh, we don't have, uh, you know, Texas food is essentially Mexican food. Tex-Mex is what it's called. It's different than Mexican food. It's completely different. The flavors are different and the, the recipes are different. Uh, we have our, you know, the, the ethnic food in this part of the state is Mexican food. There are a few little Italian restaurants around operated by the Albanians. Albanians run all of the small Italian shops. In they're breaking out in New York. They're breaking out and starting to open Albanian restaurants that are like a thousand times better. Well, I wish they'd do that here because, I mean, all of the – you go into yeah. a small Italian place run by the Albanians and they're all the – menus all the same, you know. And they do a good job. You know, it's they, not that they, they're, but but there's just Italian foods, all the same stuff. You know. Yeah, but if you go into a, in in a town in Italy of fifty thousand, and you go into a, not a Michelin starred restaurant, mm-hmm. but if you go into a reasonably priced restaurant, all the people who work there will be Albanian, and that's a strange thing, but it's. It really is, isn't it? 
It, it is a very strange thing that, that how whole, did it happen that way? Uh, I I actually have no idea how. I'm, I'm very fascinated. You know, I, I I'm married to an Italian citizen, and I'm very fascinated by the way immigration has changed Italy. But that again, we're a separate story. Uh, I do want to say that in our city, there our town there, there is a nice British restaurant that has tea and great cake and wonderful sandwiches and on Sunday a roast. <laughs> that British food, if you're under 40 and in Europe, you have great respect for British food. If you're my age, you need a little convincing, but you need to, you need I'm, to I'm, ready, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to be the convincer. Well, this is a this book is a, a is a wonderful start. I encourage everybody that's that's watching our show today get on Amazon and try to find a copy of this damn thing. You're going to love it. There's plenty on there. There's plenty on there. I just I looked an hour ago. Um, yeah, I would I, also like. I looked yesterday, yeah. and there there are there are quite a few of them. I, I think they were that, remaindered mm -hmm. out in in case lots. Probably. And, yeah, and that happens, and that's life. And they you know, that's the writer's life. Well, you ought to dis you ought to discover if you can do this with a with a five hundred dollar phone call. You ought to ask a, a copyright attorney, and I've got a good one. If you want to talk to it, what is available to you as a partial copyright holder of that work? Because it, this is a great book. This is a great book. They, whoever printed that did a damn good job with it. That is like 70 or 80 pound, seven or eight pound, I'm sorry, seven or eight pound coated paper. The photography is reproduced beautifully. The layout is, is a is beautiful, functional layout. It's a great book just from the, from the publishing standpoint. It's an excellent text. Well, and, here's the thing. I own the recipes. Right. I own the photos. Then and you can do, you can right retitle it and do another one. I could and, retitle it. I could write different sidebars and do another one. And I have it would be third in line for my because I'm not young. I go back a long time. And there is another book in, that is a similar story, but it's for the Piemonte region of Italy that I am uh, doing just that for because I can. I can write a write better text, and I can take better photos, and those recipes, they'll stand the test of time. I'm very proud they, of them. They will, and I I would encourage you to do that because uh, when you told me the other day that this thing was out of print, I just thought, God, what a what a tragic shame. This is a people do not understand how thoroughly connected American food is to the Brit. They don't understand Very much so. that Very much so. That a roast on Sunday and three or four vegetables and hot bread, that's, we didn't cry. invent that. They did. We just Americanized it, and, and we, we took it uh, one step further and— People don't understand this heritage that we have. We have a heritage of British food in the United States. 
And, you know, if you're not eating in an Italian restaurant or you're not eating enchiladas and tacos and shit like that, you're probably eating something that was either British or derived from a British recipe. Uh, Probably. You know, I think that constitutes most of it, really. If you sit down and order a meat on a plate lunch and two vegetables and bread, that's British. My, I grew up in a cafe in North Texas. I, my dad owned Floral Heights Cafe here in Wichita wow. Falls. And I grew up downtown in the, in the cafe washing dishes and cooking. And uh, he had uh, a menu that had a rotating uh, thing every day. Monday was uh, chicken dumplings. Uh, Tuesday was sirloin tips in this beautiful gravy he made. And uh, Wednesday was fried chicken. And Thursday was rotate, varied from week to week. Uh, And Friday was some kind of fish. It was either catfish or salmon patties or something like that. And Saturday was fried chicken again. And then there were always hamburger steaks available. He always had a chicken fried steak, and I've done a video on chicken fried steak recently, and I tell you, I make the best chicken fried steak in North America. Well, if you come from Texas and you're sourcing your meat, it's got to be incredible. I know how to do it. I know how to make a chicken fried. And you make them out of pork. Chicken fried steak is best. It really is a schnitzel. But I'm not going to give the krauts... Credit. Well, we're going to have to because fried chicken also has a, a German and Austrian background. Right. You mentioned chicken and dumplings. That's something that you could distinctly trace back to eight, 17th and 18th century British food. Right. But fried chicken, you have to trace back to Germany and to Austria. Well, I They're didn't know both... that's interesting. How did that happen, you think? How did, how did the Germans and the Austrians end up with fried chicken? I don't know. I'm much more interested in finding out how the Japanese wound up with it, with what are clearly Austrian, German, we're talking recipes that predate modern Germany, Right. Uh, how they wound up with it. What? Where did tempura come from? How come they're frying shrimp and chicken exactly how, the same way? Who brought that there? <laughs> Brian, how the, is it the world that just, the best fried chicken on earth is in Seoul, South Korea? Oh, well, my God. Have you eaten I, fried chicken in in South Korea, I have actually, oh, God, and I uh, I have eaten Korean fried chicken in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania too. And it's but good stuff. It's man. incredibly good because no cuisine besides Korea, other than Korea, can absorb so many different flavors. They could take Indian curry and spam and mix them together and somehow get a delicious dish and. You just sit there and you're in awe, and it's it's the strangest feeling and the strangest sight. You know how do they mix like pork belly and tofu and <laughs> and green peas and make it so spicy that you could barely eat it and you love it? Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, it's, that's there's some interesting people over there working this in the kitchen. Food, the story, my whole life first as a photographer and then as a food writer and photographer, has been devoted to the stories of food as I 
find them. I, I can't say I generally understand them. I, as I, I have no idea how the empanada and the pasty came together, for example. You're not a historian of food. You're a, you're a recorder of food. Yes. Yes. I have done historical research if I have to. Um, but what counts for me most, I didn't want it to be this way. I wanted to be a storyteller first, but I've learned that what counts for me most is the recipe. That when you have the recipe, you have a piece of history that is beyond any story that I personally can tell. That when I can give you a recipe for rag pudding or spotted dick, mm-hmm. I can tell you more. It can it can tell you more than I can tell you, even though I'm the one who typed it up. Right. Right. It's uh the history of the of the food is contained in the instructions for its creation. Yes. And, and it's uh, waiting for you. Right. That recipe is waiting for whomever discovers it. Well, it's uh you know, it's it's just amazing that uh, you know, pies, for example. Pies as they're served for dessert here in the United States, those are about as British a food as you can as you can think of with an American yes. twist. Now, my dad made he made uh, the best meringue pies that I have ever seen anywhere, and uh, he could make pie. Now, the old man could make pie. And uh, he would have six or seven different kinds of pie that were created out of the same batch of pie filling. And he just flavored them differently and put different toppings on the meringue. The meringue on those things was this thick. And uh, he knew how to make a egg white meringue and... Uh, He'd put those in the oven. He just he he could tell just with his central nervous system when the thing was ready to come out. He didn't have to look at it or anything. He'd done it so much that he could pull those out, and everybody loved his pies. But he didn't know anything about the Brits doing it, even though he was over there. If he did know about it, being British, he never mentioned it to me. But it's uh uh. You know, it's a crust with a filling and something on top. Now, that's a pasty. You know. A pasty is an extremely important notion in the world of, of pies because pasty began with a pie crust and a need for people to take a packed lunch before lunch boxes. Right. When were possible something that would carry right and now here's the thing pasties spread cornwall is very close to spain if you look at a map Mm -hmm. you will see that pasties started in cornwall in the very southwest of britain they spread throughout britain but they also spread throughout spain as empanadas and throughout the spanish-speaking world as empanadas and 
I find it very strange that there is a place in Mexico that it was settled by Welsh and Cornish miners where pasties and empanadas sort of coexisted the same vendors. Uh, I just, I, I don't even know how to. How, <laughs> That's so cool. Just, these things they they come into your mind. They, you eat them, you see them, you cook them at home a few times, and before you know it, your head is spinning. You're you're, and you you just you can't type. I can't type, or take pictures fast enough to ingest all right of this. I am, I have been doing this for decades, and I am working as hard as ever and the number of dishes coming my way i don't have to search they find me just like some people find <laughs> trouble and some people find recipes right some people like me find both <laughs> tell us um about the dumpling book what what is in that the dumpling book began with an idea i had in the early days of computing with spreadsheets, and I started keeping spreadsheets of dishes that I had in restaurants, lists of dishes, to see how they lined up. And I began to notice that there are a few techniques, like dumplings, uh, that appear everywhere in the world. And when you have that, when you see that there is a dish in Turkey and a dish in Korea called mandu, which both have the same name. Uh, really? Yeah, they're the same thing with the same name. And I find them astounded that, that see these parallels. I don't know. I would, At the time, I was living in New Jersey, and I could easily go to a Turkish restaurant or a Korean restaurant, and I would go back and forth, and I would just be baffled, and I would go into New York to the big library, the Mid-Manhattan Library and the New York Public Library, where they have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cookbooks, and I would just spend hours and days pouring over them. And then when, when I had a list ready and I was cooking, I could I could pitch it to publishers and sell it. There is also a, a book I call the Too Many Tomatoes Cookbook, where I have a hundred of African tomato recipes. I mean, most people, <laughs> they just make Italian tomato. And I no, there's Italian, there's tomato sauces from every continent. Um, in Hong Kong, people eat a lot of tomatoes. I didn't know that until I, I went there first in 1988, and I saw it, and I was like, whoa. And, of course, I wrote it down, and then later on, I transferred it to a spreadsheet. And now I, I, I'm seeing this every sort of thing because vegetables and meats have a way of spreading. Um, Brussels sprouts are eaten everywhere now. They were hardly known 30 years ago. Asparagus is eaten everywhere. Well, um, it grows everywhere. Asparagus is a weed. You know, once you get it established in a in a <laughs> in a field, you can't get rid of the shit. So you might as well eat it. You know, you you might as well eat it. And if you're really lucky, you get it in a big field, and you can sell it for five bucks a bunch to uh, <laughs> to the tourists. Yeah, which is what what they do here. Um, <laughs> but it's important that to know that that people do it, and when they get it. They cook it a whole different way than you might you might think. But I am just I, I disappointed. In fact, I was on a conference and a Zoom with some British food people in Britain 
we were talking about Brussels sprouts, and I was reading off some of my recipes. Now, Brussels sprouts are originally, well, originally from Belgium, of course, but, right. you know, they first their first life was in Britain, and they were stunned that I didn't boil them ever. Because to them, that's, <laughs> that's like the most basic food, you know. Right. To, to, to a bur- boiled Brussels sprouts is like boiled carrots to someone from the northeastern U.S. Right. It's just the most basic thing. It's just what you do but, with Brussels sprouts. Right. And, and I, they I taste said, like, oh, really working they on taste like shit recipes. like that, too. They just, they're bitter and weird. But, I, you know, then one day it occurred to somebody to quarter them and roast them in olive oil. And suddenly... These things are real good. Right. And then somebody else roasted them in walnut oil. And then somebody else said, why can't you stir fry them with Chinese sausage in a wok? Yeah. And And finally, the thing realized its potential. There's meat. And then finally, there's me typing. Sitting at this very desk, typing away, burning up my fingers, uh, burning up my typing fingers, getting all this stuff down. as fast as I can. So that's the way food is. Food is an amazing collector of our lives, our expectations, and our environments. British food is perhaps the most amazing in that respect because of the British sense of empire. Wherever British empire... It was, was. It, was, it was ubiquitous. The whole, the whole idea was ubiquitous. They were all over the world. They fed the world. The world fed them. And the best stuff was distilled through that process. And it, the hub of it is, should be in theory, London, and perhaps once was, but it's where the descendants of the keepers of that empire, the foot soldiers of that empire, where their descendants live now. Um, I want to bring up another food, which is uh, oat which cakes. Is, which is where? Oat cakes. Oat cakes what? No, are, no, which is, the, where would the descendants of that empire, where are they located? All over small town England. Small town England. Right. Everywhere. In the same way that, that veterans here will settle in small towns and small cities. They did the same. Mm-hmm. So you have towns like Stoke-on-Trent uh, where they have foods that are completely unique. They have something called the oat cakes. And oat cakes yes. are made with British oats, but they're an Indian flatbread. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Oh. I, I keep oat cakes around all the time. I love them. I first but ran God into in one of my many trips to Scotland. I ran into oat cakes, and well, that's another oh thing. Scottish God. oat cakes are another thing. Oh and God, hopefully that's good. you'll have recipes for both yeah. um, in in my books. But these there are oat cakes that are, they take oat flour and they made British style nan breads with oat flour because that's what they had there. Yeah. They were very happily remembering their Indian food. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's now a whole British cuisine made with Indian spices, which right. brought forth a whole Jamaican cuisine made with Indian spices and a whole Guyanese cuisine made with <laughs> Indian spices. 
but they're three separate cuisines. They're, it's very hard to see how they intersect, but they do. Interesting. Interesting. I, the, the best place probably to eat Indian food in the world is Great Britain. They, I think they, so. They have the Indian food is the Mexican food of Great Britain. And it is, and I'm going to go take a step further. I'm going to say Birmingham. That the there are some really great yeah. restaurant neighborhoods in the city of Birmingham, and they have a place called the Balti Triangle. The Balti Triangle. Oh, I Triangle read about is, that in this book. Yes, it's. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. It's one of my favorite uh, favorite places in for restaurants. You have this amazing collection of very competitive uh south asian restaurants you have food you have people from india and pakistan and bangladesh uh knocking their brains out cooking this very special fusion food and here in pennsylvania we can get really authentic indian food cooked by people who you know, just came over whose whose cousin works in, you know, is an engineer here or something. And their food is very authentically Indian, but it's not something that a British person would recognize. They would what they would call they used to call Indian food, they would now just call it a curry. And right. that's probably a better better word. Curry is an old English word for spicy stew. It's a, a very useful word to describe the the Indian-inspired foods that uh, now are eaten everywhere in the world. That, that I, right. I had wonderful British curry. Where was that? In, in Bangkok? Um, <laughs> just everywhere. Not just, you know, they have great Thai curry too, but we've had it all. Everything travels. Every Food is the vehicle. Food mm -hmm. takes us everywhere. Yes, it is the far more than money. It's the, it's the universal currency of human interaction. It is, and when it comes to that, comes to money, food is the easiest way for a stranger in a strange land to make a few bucks, you know, right. that you can set up, you can come to here in Amish country and you can open up a curry shop and you won't get rich, but you will do more than survive. You'll do okay. People will come in and they'll eat it. And you can also open a worst shop or a British pie shop. We have all of them here. And... They are all ways that the world comes together. Right. Then I'm, I get excited. I'm sorry. I get no, excited. I, 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 I understand completely. I understand completely. I was raised around good cooking and doing shows on cooking for a couple of years now on our little starting strength network. And it's a complete departure from our primary job, which is, barbell strength training but we uh have enjoyed making lots and lots of shows about uh well the, the, we started off with a series of, of shows on the stuff that daddy used to make at the cafe and what we call that texas cafe classics and we we made all of the recipes that he made down there that were you know there were not vegetables and we uh we started with that and then we changed over we got through with that menu and then we changed over to uh the contemporary texas kitchen which is a which is a kind of a 
silly approach to some stuff that I make at the house that's derived from the other stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, I just enjoy making, making cooking videos. So we've done quite a bit of that over the past couple of years. And, uh, uh, the, uh, I think that, I think my chili recipe, Nick, did we do that on, uh, Texas Cafe, that was a Texas Cafe classic recipe. That, that what it, it gets called Texas chili. It's a it's a what it is is a there's no there's no tomatoes in it. Chili does not contain tomatoes. That is spaghetti sauce. Spaghetti sauce has tomatoes. Chili does not mean, have. Yeah, that. I, I mean I was at Terlingua. I received this. At Terlingua, I received this 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 talk. Yeah, and I, yeah. I but I I learned that like Indian curry, the word chili to describe a food means very different things in very different places. Oh yes, it does. It means something completely different in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. It means something different in New York than it does down here. Some places have some places. This is incredible to me, but some places put pinto beans in this dish that they're referring to as chili, and I'm that's uh, that's just a problem. But if uh, you were in Columbus, Ohio, yeah, or Cincinnati, Ohio, where the whole now the whole state that's it's grown, oh yeah, and you had your chili without pinto beans and spaghetti, yes. Oh, I know. Pinto I've got, beans and spaghetti. I've got a. You would I've be got a couple of cans. As a, as a heretic. Of, I've got a couple of cans of Gold Star chili at the gym. Oh, uh-huh. I like it. In, in the primary difference between that and what we do down here, now the the cans I've got of Gold Star. What's that other one? You remember the name of that other one? It's got the, uh, the Harmel around here. Is the it's big a, canned one? But I don't. What is it? I mean, I I used to cook at a homeless shelter occasionally, and we'd use it. But I, even then, I, I put a stop to that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just yeah. You know, it's Skyline, I, Skyline. It's Skyline Chili. That's the Skyline is is yeah. That's a restaurant chain. Yeah, in in, in Ohio, they make that's they can their chili. Yeah, and and that, you know the primary difference between Texas chili and that stuff they have up there is one their stuff is runnier than ours. It's got more water in it than we. We thicken ours with flour, and and right. it's got to stand up like a stew. And they put cinnamon in the spice mix up there, right. and we don't do that down here. Our spices right. here are what I when I make it, I use uh, Bueno Foods mild red chili powder which is a New Mexico company, a big New Mexico company, Bueno Foods, mild red chili powder, and which still ends up being hot if you use enough, and and cumin, and onions and garlic, and that's all that's in it. And, right, but can you imagine the first Greek immigrant guy who saw that recipe and working in a coffee shop or in, in a restaurant, a road, in a roadside restaurant in probably in Ohio, he would look at that recipe and say, how could you do this without cinnamon? Right, and, right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, what's going on? No one in Greece would do this. 
Yes. And he would put the cinnamon in. Put cinnamon in it, and it, it, it actually is good. And it, it's, it's good, and it's you good have a completely different food. Yes. That little pinch of that spice makes one it a completely spice different One spice changes food. the nature of the recipe so completely. But, yeah, you know, and I could I could imagine going. I haven't ever done this because I hadn't been in Ohio since I woke up to this fact. But I'd love to go to a Gold Star restaurant and, and order uh, a bowl of chili on spaghetti. It doesn't come in a bowl. What does it do? They put it on a plate like it was a steak. Oh, they take cool. the plate. Yeah, they take the plate and they cover it with spaghetti. And then and they, they take the, the chili, chili and there. beans and they put it on this like it was spaghetti sauce. Right. And then they take this cheddar cheese, which is, again, is a total, although it's commonly manufactured in, in, in that area, the shreds of cheddar cheese that don't look too different than, than what Tex-Mex people would put on tacos. Right. And that's what you would get. Mm. And it sounds it is, good to me. I might even eat it with the beans because. Well, I wouldn't just, eat it in. I wouldn't eat it in Texas if I were you. No, and no, I it's not. Eat it in you, New York if you're I just were inviting you. problems for yourself down here if you eat chili with beans in it. You're I immediately you considered to be a Yankee. You know, and nobody and, wants well, to be. Yeah, a Yankee. and you're, you're. The biggest problem you invite is when you start eating foods in a way that's different than the way the locals eat them. Yes. When yeah, the you, locals. It doesn't matter where you are. Don't listen to anyone that tells you that there are places without food culture. Every place has a food culture. Yes. And, and you if, will, if you do otherwise, you are stepping on toes. You're stepping on toes. You eat chili in Texas and without, without beans, and you eat the beans separately because the best cooked beans I've ever had in the United States, anyway, have been in Texas. Yes. If you eat chili... Without spaghetti in Ohio, well, then you're asking for another kind of trouble. Yeah, it's just every it's place just has a done. thing. <laughs> every done. place has a thing. And what you call chili, when I was growing up in New York City, you would call what we would call chili, you would call salsa. Right. It's right. just the, 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 yeah. The oh, sauce chili is what you put on those, those triangular potato chips. Right. But they're not <laughs> potato, they're made of something they're else. Made out of corn. They, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, most New Yorkers didn't know that then. Now there know. is a, the best beans in Wichita Falls are at a barbecue place downtown that used to be the best barbecue place in the area, but which has fallen from grace recently. But those goddamn guys have got the best beans down there, man. Oh God, they're good. And, Anyone in uh, your area still barbecuing bologna? They do down there. They they make yeah they they uh, smoke bologna down there. That you is get, you I would get a bologna plate with with those beans and it's pretty good. You know That's it's pretty good. And they'll make they got two kinds of sausage. They've got some uh, just regular smoked sausage and then they've got hot links. And sometimes I'll go down there and I will get a, a hot link sausage plate and have them chop it up real fine, and then I'll. Then I'll cover all of that sausage with their beans. I, I've had this something on my mind that I want to mention. It's been since the beginning of this this recording, and I want to make a suggestion about cooking that that mutton leg because right. the that the big ham leg of mutton right can really be improved if you get a good 
strong red wine and braise it in red wine. Um, before will, you cook it. Well, you marinate oh, no, no, it you before braise you cook it. it. Or you braise it, you braise cook it, it very in the slowly wine. in the I wine. I got you. I got you. One or the other. Right. And I, I can't keep plugging all of my books, but uh, in another book, I have some good braising instructions there. What book is that? That would be Lamb, A Global History. Lamb, A Global History. From Reaction Books, which was I'm published gonna, in Britain, but not here. I'm going to have um, to get that. Is it on Amazon? It most certainly is, Good. and um, it might Land be on Amazon as the University of Chicago Press, or it might be Reaction Books. All right, uh, I'll get. But that it's in print. It's I've a, got. It's a very good braised mutton recipe. And in, in, in fact, here in uh, what is this? This is first of February. Uh, here in about four weeks, we are going to kill fifteen sheep. And what I do is I keep a couple for myself, and then I'll sell without making any money on it. I'll sell it to the members, and the members of the gym have all signed up for a sheep or two. And the guy that raises them for me hauls them over to the kill plant, and those guys will will kill all of them same day, and they'll go in the go in the in the chill room, and they'll hang for three weeks, and then they take them down and do the cut order and then freeze them and i give them about three days and then i'll go over and pick up me and two or three other trucks will go over there and pick up all this meat bring it back and everybody gets a sheep and it's everybody just loves this everybody we've been doing this for two or three years now and the minute i put the sheep up they're all signed up for and i'm telling you brian these damn things are this guy knows how to raise these animals. He's real good at this. And I would love, I'm going to read that book and I'm going to, there's got to be different ways to, to make them than we've been doing. So, so here's the oh, lamb please. book. Okay, here's the lamb, lamb book. Lamb, a global history. Oh, By look at those Yarvin, chops. Brian Yarvin. And I would like to say it's a small book. And it's part of a, a large series of small books. This is the only one of the series that I personally wrote. And I'm very proud of some of the recipes in here. And I think, oh, look at the pictures are better than the pictures in the British book. I shouldn't have, shouldn't really? have started this. Uh, oh, <laughs> this is the uh, mutton leg that I cooked with red. The first one I cooked with red wine. I learned that I could get them at a South American butcher. Uh, didn't know that before but it it worked it you just sometimes you just have to do it just, just i mean you just have to accept the fact that 80 percent of your dishes will be good and sometimes you'll make a mistake but you know, sometimes you make a mistake and that's what the dog is for the dog is we don't have the dog but nonetheless that's what sandwiches are for yeah and hot sauce too yeah but oh there's ways to use everything there's ways to use it. If you didn't get it perfect, well, you could grind it up and you could put it chop in a it up soup, and you know. There's always something and we you know, we are surrounded here by farmland too, and we, we seek out these ingredients. We're happy to have them. We know farmers and suppliers and butchers. We and we also have phenomenal produce, fruit and vegetables here too. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
it's it just there's no end to it there's just the stories continue right many of the great cooks cook until they're in their 90s because <laughs> Well, know, what else are they going to do? You know, what else are they going to do? They, because they got to eat. They're not going to eat somebody stop. else's shit. You know, so yeah. You, <laughs> if you cook well, you, you're not going to go to the fast food. You know, to the drive-through no. aisle. No. You know, if you could make a chicken pot pie yourself, why would you buy a frozen one? Right. Um. So that's that's the way we do it. Um. I just my profession my job my life is to inspire people to cook things that they didn't cook before right and i do that by cooking things that i didn't cook before and writing them right. down right make the mistakes learn from the mistakes and then do it again and do it better and yes, eventually sir. you know five or six tries in you've got some pretty good shit on the plate usually yes Ooh. usually yes you know? and enough enough to keep creating books and photos and just keeping this going absolutely brian i appreciate your being with us today this is uh this is a topic dear to my heart and uh you know it's uh all of us here on the other side of the camera from you are big food heads and we you know really appreciate what you've done and uh this will be a popular episode i'm quite sure and i'm going to I'll send you a link to where you can watch the whole thing when it goes up. This should air here pretty soon. And, uh, in fact, it's going to air Friday. Well, and, that's uh, great. Yeah. I'll put up it up. When you get it up there, I'll put it up on my, Excellent. my Facebook page too. I have about 4,800 people currently watching. Good, good. Following good. my work. And I just want to say before I go, Lamp, just give it a plug, Lamb, a global history. A World of Dumplings, and The Plowman's Lunch, and The Miser's Feast. You know, a, buy uh, that used, but look for it, because it's worth the search. Absolutely. All of them are available new, used, and in any form you wish, and I just want you to get them and start cooking. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to do it, man. Thank you okay. for being with us today, Brian. Sure do appreciate your time, and uh, maybe we'll talk again one of these days. Someday, someday, yep. and uh, I appreciate the chance to, to talk about food and recipes. It, it's right. everything for me. Excellent, excellent. Okay. All right, Bye -bye. sir, and we'd like to thank you guys for joining us today on Starter Strength Radio. We'll see you next week.